Good morning. Our scripture reading is the sermon text for this morning, and it's found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 41. We've sung this chapter, <laughs> different aspects of this chapter, throughout the songs this morning. Um, so it's been encouraging having Isaiah 41 on the mind. So encouraged to sing those songs, and I hope you'll see the connections. So page 601 in the Pew Bible, if you don't have a Bible with you, or if you want to use the, the Bible in the Pew in front of you, it's on page 601. If you wouldn't mind standing as I read in honor of God's Word, I'm going to read the whole chapter. This is what God says. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him, so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good, and they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all, for I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth, you shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord. In the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together that they may see and know 
may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them in and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar and as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say, he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. This is God's word. You may be seated. So uh, there's a theologian named David Wells. I don't know if he's still teaching up at Gordon-Conwell, but he used to. Um, And he wrote back in the early 90s a book called God in the Wasteland. And there's a little quote that... uh, is weighty. He said, the fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is not inadequate technique, insufficient organization, or antiquated music. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant, his grace is too ordinary, his judgment is too benign, his gospel is too easy, and his Christ is too common. So, You can imagine if that's true and people go in and out of churches like that, they'd think that God is a lightweight. That's what Albert Einstein thought. Um, Interesting quote by a guy named Charles Meisner. He's an accomplished scientist and general relativity theory, and he wrote these words regarding Albert Einstein's view of preaching. I do believe the design of the universe is an essentially religious question. That is, one should have some kind of respect and awe for the whole business. It's very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is the reason Einstein had so little use for organized religion, although he strikes me as a very religious man. He must have looked at what the preachers said about God and felt that they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined. They were just not talking about the real thing. So that could be an indictment to me. I need to take that seriously. But let's bring this around to all of us. Does God rest too inconsequentially on your life? If someone knew your patterns of, let's say, fear and anxiety... Could they conclude that your God was a featherweight? 
well, never fear, (laughs) pun intended, Isaiah 41 is here, okay? So it picks up right where we left off last week. Look at chapter 40, verse 31. So if you're still there from where we had our scripture reading, um, page 601. Look at the end. We're walking through the book of Isaiah, section by section here. And we've come to chapter 41 But last week, we looked at these great promises at the end of chapter 40. This great God who's created everything and called all the stars by name and his immensity and his power is clear. Well, those who wait for the Lord, verse 31, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint, which is a really, really sweet promise. That whole mount up with wings like eagles, if if you were reading the Bible, just Genesis all the way through, it would send your memory back, and maybe some of you have thought about this, back to the exodus from Egypt. It was the Israelites, God's people, who were redeemed and rescued by God's mighty arm from Egypt. Listen to Exodus 19.4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. It's a way of speaking about his strong deliverance. Okay? So here's the question. Is the promise of 4031 only for Israelites, God's people who lived 2,600, 2,700 years ago that Isaiah was writing to? No. The Lord already begins to point in the direction of these promises being for all peoples in verse 1 of chapter 41, which is our text for this morning. So anyone can get in on this. And if you're in on this, it's because of the fulfillment of the trajectory of the book of Isaiah. These promises are going to be for all the peoples, for the whole world. So point number one, anyone can get in on this. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Um, There's some historical cultural distance between us and Isaiah. We have to get over that. But once we do, we're going to understand the book, just like if you try to you know, understand an iPhone for the first time, you need to understand the jargon. Okay? Well, the same thing happens here. So coastlands, just the title for the ends of the earth okay, in the ancient Near East. So listen to me, ends of the earth. Let the peoples renew their strength. So the big question is, where are you going to renew your strength? Where is your strength? Where are you going to look to renew it? Verse goes on, let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment or draw near to the place of decision, okay? So anyone can get in on the strength renewal of 4031, but it does mean that you have to throw down your idols and look up with empty hands to the Lord, the one true God. So when the threats come, when... You or I, when we're suffering, we oftentimes tend to focus on the threat itself. It's so big, it looms large, it's right in front of our eyes, right? So how many of you have had a serious medical diagnosis, and what do you end up doing? You research like mad. How many of you have been spooked by some of the active shooter stuff in recent days, and you've been researching concealed carry? Or perhaps in the past something happened and you took a karate class. Okay. Anybody? 
you probably don't want to admit it, okay? Or your job is on the bubble and you go into overdrive, getting your resume out and you reach out to all your important connections. Now, there may be nothing bad with any of those actions in and of themselves, but when we scramble without looking to God, because our eyes are primarily on the threat that looms large, we're not walking in faith. We're being governed by fear. Do you see that? So God says, stop anxiously looking about you and look at me. Do you know who I am? We really need to be able to answer that question, and Isaiah 40 to 48 has lots of answers to that question. Um, Let's look at the answer given in the next few verses here. Second point, verses 2 to 4. Do you know who I am? He says, I'm the one in whose hand the greatest powers on the planet are just pawns. They're puppets. Look at verse 2. Who stirred up one from the east? It's God speaking through Isaiah. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He, referring to God, gives up nations before him, the one he stirred up. And this is actually Cyrus, okay? Cyrus the Great. This actually happened in history. God predicted it ahead of time through Isaiah. Cyrus, the king of Persia, crushed Babylon, and the Israelites who were in exile in Babylon were able to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild, okay? Ezra and Nehemiah stuff, right? So this is being predicted ahead of time, and the Lord is saying, who's the one in charge of this? Who does this stuff? Who stirs these leaders up? Who's in charge of world history? Because you know what? Cyrus, even though he was a more humane leader than past leaders, it was amazing how quickly the landscape shifted in front of him, and people just, he tramples kings underfoot, makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them, passes on safely. Who has performed and done this? Not Cyrus. Calling the generations from the beginning, each successive generation. The Lord, he he was, he is, he is to come. So I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. Okay, so many at the time, they feared the political military movements that threatened their safety and their security. And those movements not only held threats to their physical well-being, but also their economic well-being and their future security. That sounds pretty relevant to us, doesn't it? Political, military, economic well-being. Well, what if you knew the one who was completely in charge of all the ebbs and flows of political history, military history, economic history, and economic, military, political future. Totally in control. Who does all these things? I, the Lord, am in control of each successive generation from the beginning to the end of time. Listen to Daniel 2. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. John John 19, remember when Jesus was um, dialoguing with Pilate? And Pilate said, don't you know I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Because Jesus didn't answer one of his questions. And Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. 
So who are you going to trust in the face of threats and dangers and trials and suffering? Are you going to trust yourself? Are you going to run to other helps and deliverers? Well, the sovereign Lord says, let's see what you can muster. Okay, now he's speaking of the nations, but we need to make sure that we're not being driven by fear and running just like the nations did to their gods. So we need to hear this because it can help us to not follow that pathway. Go ahead, the Lord says, screw up your strength or maybe you can use some nails. Verses 5 to 7, point 3. So the coastlands, again, this is ends of the earth. They've seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They've drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. Okay, so in other nations, they had the threats. The military threats would hit their kingdoms too, right? So what did they do? They kind of gathered together and said, be strong. We can do it. But this is what life sounds like without God. This is life without God. You're on your own. The threats come, you have to screw up your own strength, or you have to find someone or something with some metaphorical nails to help batten down the hatches of your life. You know, maybe you're going to find some fellowship in that endeavor. You're not going to be alone. Verse 7, the craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it's good. It is good. Does that ring a bell? Listen to Ray Ortland. When the craftsman says in verse 7, it is good, Isaiah hears a parody of the creation account. In Genesis 1, didn't God declare his creation good? But here, a frightened little created being looks with hopeful longing at the welding on his metallic God and pronounces it good. I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said, when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything When fearful people lose their sense of God, what do they do? They join together to construct their own meanings, their own myths, and the artificiality of it all is the world's guilty secret. So what are you relying on? Hopefully not human-made, humanly reinforced gods. Okay, We were made in the image of the one who made all things and said, it is good. He made us to do our work in his strength for his glory and then say, it is good. We should make good goods. We should do good. But after the fall, because we're bent naturally, we tend to worship our own creations. It's the reversal of creation, the upending of things. So the creator created in order for his creatures to worship him. Instead, we naturally worship and serve created things. We make little gods in our own image and then we call them good. But our guilty little secret is only shallow beneath the surface. We know they're not strong, so we often try to strengthen them. That's why they're strengthening it with nails here so that it cannot be moved. So I know this, again, this sounds weird in our ears because we don't actually have little images, even though other peoples and other places in our world today do this still. And you know that an idol, it's not that they actually worship this little statue, it's what the statue represents, right? Just like people who worship money don't actually worship paper, but what the paper can buy them, the security, the pleasure, the prestige, whatever. So 
Nations can do this strengthening work. So if money's your God and the housing bubble bursts, you can try to strengthen your God with an economic stimulus. Just some, some more nails, just a few more nails. Or individuals can do this. Comfort and health is a God and we want to live forever. And we scramble. Healthcare, doctors, meds, vitamins, the next promising fad or breakthrough. So let's see this tendency for what it is and not follow suit. If we know God, if we know who he is, it should make all the difference. So that's why the next section begins the way that it does. Point number four, verses eight to 14. Not just do you know who God is, but do you know whose you are? Look at how it starts out there. But you, it should be different for us who know God. But you, Israel... My servant, which should have good connotations, not bad connotations. This is ownership. He's assuming responsibility for our well-being. But you, my people, Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Look at all these descriptions here of God's love for his people. So if... If you're a Christian, you've been, God set his, his gracious hand on you. He chose you, plucked you out of the pit, out of your sin and rebellion, brought you close to himself. I've chosen you and not cast you off. So this is the sweetness of the undeserved election and choosing of God here. And that doctrine is not meant to be wielded like a club in theological debate. It's a comfort in the midst of threatening circumstances. It's intended to bring humble, grateful confidence and security to our souls. So all of these gracious statements here, you, my people, and if we're in Christ, This is applying to us. I've chosen you. I've not cast you off. You are my servant. I took you from the farthest reaches and made you mine. Fear not, verse 10, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you or do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. So the nations, they prop up their featherweight gods, but you, you're chosen upheld and strengthened by the omnipotent one okay again back to chapter 40 actually back to chapter 40 um, verse 26 remember he's the one who created and calls all the stars by name all the galaxies and billions and billions and billions of stars he says lift up your eyes on high and see who created these he who brings out their host by number calling them all by name by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power not one is missing so the lord says Do you want my strength? Or do you want to screw it up by yourself? Or do you want to find, you know, find some strength with the fellowship of the idol makers? Just a few more nails. I think it'll hold. No, the Lord says, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous or victorious right hand. So look, look at verse 10. This is huge. I talk about fighter verses that have been so intensely helpful. I know for me personally, this verse is one of my favorites. Um, Incredible promise, Isaiah 41.10. What is the biggest word in Isaiah 41.10? This is kind of a trick question. 
I. That's the biggest word in this verse. So look at your life. Consider your anxiety, your fear, your patterns. Maybe I need to jog your memory a little bit. Are you afraid of flying? Are you afraid when the leaves rustle around on a nighttime walk? When you lie in bed at night, you hear a strange sound. You drive or walk through a bad part of town. How about the dark? Maybe the kids, maybe the bigger kids, the adults still afraid of the dark. How about loss of financial job security, loss of health, loss of your child's health, suffering and pain, death, yours, your spouse's, your child's, physical attack, spiritual attack, failure, afraid of, parent, of failure, afraid of the future and all of its uncertainty, afraid of not finishing well. You're afraid of confrontational situations, not doing the, the right thing, saying the right thing. You're afraid of being alone. Afraid of being led by God to a place where you don't want to go, out of your comfort zone. You're afraid of persecution for the sake of the gospel. What are they going to think? I don't even want to share the gospel. Are you waiting for the other shoe to drop? Middle age and beyond, you know, friends are falling like flies. When's that day going to come for me? People around you getting cancer, having heart attacks. So here's the question. Is the I of 4110 towering in your life? Or is it tiny? If we have a small view of God, then these promises are going to carry very little weight. They're going to rest on us inconsequentially. But if we have a huge, biblical, glorious, majestic, awe-inspiring view of God, that that's what he's like, then the weight of these massive promises are going to crush the fear and anxiety in our souls. How big is the eye in your faith's eye, the eyes of faith, seeing who God is? If, if it's tiny, I think we all struggle with it being tiny. What should you do? Well, Isaiah is strong medicine especially Isaiah 40 to 48. Maybe hang out there for a while, like the next month, and pray that the Lord would open your eyes to see him in all of his glory and free you from those fears and that anxiety. It's the same kind of logic in Romans 8. Romans 8, 28 to 39. In fact, flip over there just to see the logic. So his choosing, electing grace leads to security because he's so great and good and he will hold me fast. And so it drives away our fearlessness because we know who he is. We'll look at the logic and the, the flow of thought in Romans 8. Let's start at verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose... That calling is ultimate. That's the decisive factor. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's called the golden chain among many theologians. You don't fall through the cracks in that series. And here's the point. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
And then, again, it's all based on his grace. It's not just his raw power. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Through fiery trial, my pathway shall lie. His grace all sufficient will be my supply. He's going to give us what we need. Nothing can separate us from his love. So what do you do if, if you find, because you see, you kind of take your spiritual temperature, you see the eye is so tiny, it must be because there's so much anxiety, so much fear, I'm just riddled with it. I'm governed by it. I need to see God. I need to behold my God in all of his glory. Or take the fighter verse for this week. You knew I was going to do this, right? God's providence that... Uh, Psalm 56 is the, the, the verses for this past week that go along with this message. So who's got it? Psalm 56? Come on, somebody. When I'm, yeah, Tracy, go ahead. Stand up. Say it nice and loud. Yeah, that's right. What can people do to me? Well, they can kill you. But that's all. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. First time I ever saw this as I was meditating on it this week. When I'm afraid, I shall not be afraid. Does that sound like craziness? Is that contradictory? Is that speaking out of both sides of your mouth? No, that's biblical logic. That's how the grace of God works. When I'm afraid, I trust in God, I shall not be afraid. That's what Isaiah 41, that's what God is wanting us to do. That's where he's pushing us. That's where Romans 8, 28, the grace of God. Yes, nothing can separate me. If God is for me, who can be against me? So if there is no one like this God, if he's holy and we are his servants, we've been chosen by him, we're not rejected, then who can be against us? Look at verse 11. Behold, back, this is back in Isaiah now. Isaiah 41, 11. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish, again, if God is for you. You shall seek those who condemn with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be nothing at all. So you don't have to take vengeance. You don't have to retaliate because you know God. And you know he has you and he will one day set all things to rights. And he's with you even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Verse 13, for I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. Isn't this awesome? He upholds us by his righteous, victorious right hand, his omnipotent right hand, and he holds our hand with that hand. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Okay, so this section is so sweet and awesome. You can't miss this section. The reasons why we need not fear, again, I mentioned it before, but it's underscored again here, not just tied to the Lord's raw, omnipotent power, but also to his tender care and his amazing grace. Got to see this here. We need to savor this one. In fact, you might want to, hang out in these verses this week and let them sink down into your soul. So we're the worm, which we could take offense at that. But the point is, we're just totally lowly and inconsequential relative to God. 
But here is the King of Kings, the Holy One of Israel. There's no one like him. He's totally in a class by himself, totally transcendent and peerless. He says he is our Redeemer. Now, what does that mean? Remember the story of Ruth and Boaz? Boaz was Ruth's kinsman redeemer. Ruth's husband had died. In in that ancient Near Eastern culture, they had these um, customs. And what would happen is the next of kin in line to take her needy condition on himself as his own, to rescue her from ruin in that widowhood by taking on her neediness as his own and meeting all those needs. And Boaz was glad to do that. There was obviously one closer, but that guy kind of balked and said, nope, you know, you can, you can have her. So think about this, folks. The creator, the creator of all that is, the Holy One, he declares himself the next of kin to the worm. We're the lowly worm, totally inconsequential. And he says, we're going to be family. So you've obviously got an infinite condescension that has to happen for this to be possible, right? So Hebrews 2 says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. The Son of God took on flesh and blood that through his death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, people who believe, trust God. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins to absorb the just condemnation that we deserve, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Why the incarnation? Why did God the Son take on flesh and blood and live and die for us? So that we could be family. (laughs) So that he could be next of kin with the worm. I am for you, and there's no one like me, and everything and everyone is as nothing compared to me, so fear not. Again, if he didn't spare his only son, how will he not also with him give us everything that we need and take us all the way home? Through all the fearful anxiety producing threats and whatnot. So I don't don't know what you tend to fear, what gets your anxiety up. I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to see in my lifetime. I don't know what my kids are going to see in theirs if Jesus doesn't come back first. I mean, things could get pretty ugly here in the U.S. We could face some really, really hard times. World War III could take place. Who knows? I'm trying to be like chicken little. I'm just saying economic collapse, martial law. Who knows? We, we could be taken over by a rival country down the road. Then, then our lives would be a little bit closer to what some of these folks in Isaiah's day faced. So there's no guarantee that our freedom and economic prosperity, military peace will continue on forever. But what is guaranteed, if you trust him, is John 16, the words of Jesus. I said these things to you that in me, 
you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. (laughs) So in this passage, God is not only saying, do you know who I am? He's also saying, do you know whose you are? We lowly creatures, (laughs) we have a redeemer, and he is the king of glory the Holy One of Israel. Now look at what happens to to that worm as we head into verses 15 and 16. We've considered whose we are. We belong to the King of Kings, but now we're going to see who we are. We are the vanguard. What's a vanguard? Like the lead edge of world transformation. This might sound a little weird, but look at verse 15. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge. Try to say that 10 times fast. Threshing sledge. So remember, I will strengthen you. New, sharp, and having teeth, you shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. So a threshing sledge was something that you need. It's like this wooden platform that had embedded rocks or, or broken pottery, sharp things. So you run it over, you drag it over the wheat, and it separates the good from the bad, the wheat from the chaff. And then you winnow it, you throw it up in the air, and the wind just takes the chaff away. So God is saying to the worm, that he redeemed, I'm going to turn the worm into a world-changing threshing sledge. (laughs) What in the world does that mean? Crazy transformation. The worm becomes a threshing sledge that can level the mountains. Mountains being a metaphor for kind of the powers that be. So listen to Ray Ortland again. The way to make sense of this laughable scenario is to think back to chapter 40. God said there said there that the moral topography of the whole world would be reordered. Remember, every mountain will be laid low and every valley raised up, you know, because the Lord's coming. The moral topography of the whole world would be reordered to make way for the glory of the Lord. The world as it is now isn't suitable for the display of God in its ultimacy, finally. Everything is going to change. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low and so forth. Now in chapter 41, God is saying that he intends to use us to do it. We're totally inadequate, but God makes a worm into a threshing sledge. Verse 16, you shall winnow them. Remember, throwing up the wheat and the chaff. The wind shall carry them away, carry the chaff away. The tempest shall scatter them. So let me just take this immediately to what this means for us. So I had a conversation with a guy recently. He's not trusting in the Lord as his strength, as his savior. He has things he trusts in. And we talked about those things. And I told him at one point that they're not gonna do him much good on his deathbed. But God sure can through Jesus. So that's just one example of how We are the threshing sledge. We are the vanguard of judgment day, actually. We bring it early. We offer amnesty with the king of kings through our witness. If people reject us, they are that much closer to the day when they will be carried off as chaff. 
If they accept our message, then they're already safe for all eternity. Do you see how we're like a wedge bringing the division that will finally be brought on the day when Jesus separates on his right and his left? So we, the church, actually winnow the world. <laughs> it all seems so small, and we seem so small and insignificant. I mean, we're not talking about corporate mergers or political or military campaigns. Us? Really? We're like the worm, you know? But we are talking about the gospel of the kingdom traveling like a wedge through the earth, dividing people to one of two sides. Don Whitney wrote this. Um, he wrote, Imagine a history book written in heaven a million years after the end of the earth. How much space will it devote to the stock market? Corporate mergers, presidential elections, and sports championships. Won't it be dominated instead by actions in and through the local church, deeds that passed unnoticed at the time by people the world overlooked? The names of many mighty and noble may be mere footnotes, but the names who loved the Lord, who waited for the Lord, that he would renew their strength, that he would strengthen them, that they would be the threshing sledge, that they would bring good news to the nations. They will fill the pages, he writes. So those who are strong will be as nothing because the Holy One of Israel is your strength and your God. So again, don't fear those who can kill the body, but after that have nothing more that they can do. So I mentioned this a while ago, but I'm, I'm going to say it again. David Brainerd, um, it was a prayer of his that I ran across that just caught my attention um, a couple years ago, and I started to pray it, and then I it fell off the radar for a while and came back not so long ago. Um, but David Brainerd was a missionary to the Delaware Indians of New Jersey. Okay, lived in the early 1700s. He lived out his last days in Jonathan Edwards' home. One of Jonathan Edwards' daughters um, cared for him, and I think they fell in love. They, he died at 29, so they didn't get married or anything. But um, he had a fruitful ministry among the Indians in his short little life. And I read a prayer of his and started to adopt it as my own. And I encourage you to do the same, not just for yourself, but also for our church. Here's what he said. Lord, do something through me, as his paraphrase, completely out of proportion with who I am. Would you accomplish something through me completely out of proportion with who I am? As the years go by, my estimation of what I can do just keeps kind of dropping. <laughs> and hopefully that doesn't mean I'm just throwing my hands. That's not the point. It's just, I, apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. That's, that's what I'm talking about. And where we're small, who are we? What, Delaware, you know, Wilmington, so what? What's, Lord, do something through our church completely out of proportion with who we are. Wouldn't that be like God to do that? Because his power is perfected in weakness. So, so don't despair if you feel like you're weak. Remember whose you are. Remember who our God is. Why wouldn't he use weak worms like us? 
that he loves to redeem and choose and set his affection on and say, you're mine and nothing can separate you from my love. And the Lord will answer that prayer. (laughs) In fact, it's funny. I, I thought about this this morning. He only lived to be 29. The fact that we know his name is amazing. I think it's an answer to that prayer. Edwards took his diaries and had them published. And you know what? They were a great inspiration to William Carey. If you don't know that name, he's like the pioneer of missions in many circles. Jim Elliott read that, that diary, and it changed him and inspired him, many others. The Lord's going to answer that prayer in verse 16. You shall rejoice in the Lord. We're not going to rejoice in our strength. We're going to rejoice in his strength, worked out through us in our weakness. You shall rejoice in the Lord and the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. So it's crazy to think how God has loved us, how he has honored us, worm, with his incredible grace and mercy and kindness, this condescension to take on flesh and bone so he could be next of kin with us and redeem us. And then to include us in his mission to accomplish his purposes in his world. So the role might seem like a tall order to all of us, you know, well, I'm an introvert, you know, yeah, so am I, okay. I'm afraid to share my faith or I'm regularly fearful and anxious. Great, good setup for God to show his strength. Let's just scrap the excuses and get our eyes on the omnipotent king of kings that's our God. And there's even more grace in this passage for us. Look at point number six, never forsaken all the way home, verses 17 to 20. When the poor and needy, that's us, (laughs) that's the worm that becomes a threshing sledge, this is how God helps them to accomplish his purposes. These are those he strengthens, the poor and needy. They seek water, there is none. Their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. So wait for me, trust in me, hope in me. I will open rivers on the bare heights. Fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, the olive, and I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together. Many of us are not tree buffs, okay? So what's the deal with all these trees? Two things when you're traveling through the desert. If you're going from Egypt to the promised land or if you're going out of the domain of darkness and you can't wait to get all the way home to the new heavens and the new earth. This world's like a wilderness, but you know what? God can create waters in the desert. He can slake your thirst. He can care for you. And all these trees, none of them are fruit trees. They're all shade trees. If you are in the desert, you need some shade. That's a really big deal. Water and shade, two most key things you need and here provided in abundance miraculously by God. Why? that men may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. So I am your keeper. The Creator can create protection and refreshment and vitality out of nothing where there is none. (laughs) So we can wait for Him. We can trust in Him. We can hope in Him. And He will come through. He won't forsake us. He wants to rest consequentially weighty on us so that we weak little worms will show the glory of his strength and people will know that it's not us, not our native strength. No, it's the hand of the Lord that's done this.
the Holy One of Israel who's created it. So do you see the purpose here for the provision, the protection, so that everyone will see that God is a heavyweight. (laughs) He's not a lightweight. He's the heavyweight champion of the world. So you and I, we're supposed to be living advertisements for the truth of the promise of Isaiah 40, 31. That those who wait for the Lord, the only true God, they will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. So last point quickly, the Lord ends this section by trash talking. Trash talking the competition. Verses 21 to 29, set forth your case, says the Lord. So, so if there's any doubt who we ought to trust, if we still kind of are tempted by idols to run to other gods, let this tra- trash talking kind of disavow and, and disabuse you of that, of that illusion, okay, that myth, that mirage. Okay, set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them... The nations with their gods. Let them bring them. Bring those gods into the, into the ring here with me. Let's see how that goes. You, you tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome. Or, you know what, better yet, why don't you tell us the future? Tell us what's going to come. Because if you're gods, you should be able to do that. Tell us so that we would know that you're gods. Do something, would you? Would you do good? Would you do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified? So do you see the true God taunting (laughs) these false gods and those who trust in them? People are trusting in idols that are nothing, so God's going to demonstrate their mute silence betrays what they really are. Idols are mute, right? Because they're not real. I love this statement by Ray Ortland. He says, God sues the idols for false advertising. And then he goes on and says, God is taking the pagan gods to court for false advertising. It's the court of human opinion. He's saying to every rival God, okay, you have the floor. Go ahead and embarrass me. I dare you. Don't just sit there. Do something. Do anything to shock us. Here's your chance to prove that you're not dead weight. So whatever your God substitutes, might, you might be tempted to put it in here. Compare it with God. And here's the bottom line. The Lord says, behold, you're nothing. Verse 24. And your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. Idols are an abomination. They're abominable. And those who make them, who trust in them, become like them. That's why it's dangerous. Keep yourself from idols. First John says, oh no. Verse 25, the Lord says, I stirred up one from the north. Again, it's Cyrus. From, and he has come from the rising of the sun. He's called upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning? Who said it in advance? I did. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words, none of the gods of the nations. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. Cyrus is coming. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news, Isaiah. But when I look, there is none. Among these gods of the nations, there's no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, all the idols of the nations, they are a delusion. They, their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty when lightweights, delusions, nothing, emptiness, or you can have the heavy, heavyweight champion of the world fighting for you. If God is for us, who can be against us? So let me close. I, I don't think there's a better way that I can think of of, of 
illustrating the power of this grace at work in a soul than in the life of one of my heroes, a guy named John Patton. So he lived in the 1800s. He was a missionary to the South Seas. The New Hebrides, okay, um, Vanuatu, I think is what it's called now, the island. So at the time when he went, that island was, those islands were filled with cannibals. You want to go be a missionary in an island of cannibals where they don't want you to come? Where they eat the missionaries, okay? So it's an amazing story to read this guy's autobiography. Let me just read you two brief excerpts and then we'll close. We're going to sing a song and uh, we'll be done. So here's, his life was under threat all the time, just left and right. It's unbelievable. He writes, But my enemies seldom slackened their hateful designs against my life, however calmed or baffled for the moment. Within a few days of the above events, when natives in large numbers were assembled at my house, a man furiously rushed on me with his axe. But a chief snatched a spade with which I had been working and dexterously, dexterously defended me from instant death. Life in such circumstances led me to cling very near to the Lord Jesus. I knew not for one brief hour when or how attack might be made, and yet, with my trembling hand clasped in the hand once nailed on Calvary and now swaying the scepter of the universe, calmness and peace and resignation abode in my soul. Next day, a wild chief followed me for about four hours with his loaded musket. Just put yourself in that spot. We're not talking about a death threat, an impersonal, anonymous death threat. We're talking about cannibal with a gun following you around, and he's hungry. Wild chief. And though often directed towards me, God restrained his hand. I spoke kindly to him and attended to my work as if he had not been there. I'm sorry, the only explanation for that is a worm into a threshing sledge, the strength of God, not because he's super missionary, superman. I just wonder, do we really wait on the Lord? Do we really look to the Lord? Fully persuaded that my God had placed me there and would protect me till my allotted task was finished. Looking up in unceasing prayer to our dear Lord Jesus, I left all in his hands and felt immortal till my work was done. Trials and hairbreadth escaped, strengthened my faith, and seemed only to nerve me for more to follow, and they did tread swiftly upon each other's heels. Without that abiding consciousness of the presence and power of my dear Lord and Savior, nothing else in all the world could have preserved me from losing my reason and perishing miserably. His words, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, became so real. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you. I will... I screwed it up. How does that go? (laughs) Strengthen you. Help you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my omnipotent, righteous right hand. That's good news. So we're going to close with a song, and then 
if you are wrestling with some fears and anxieties and you just want somebody to pray with you, after we are finished singing, would you just come up here? And can I ask, I'm putting a couple of you on the spot, but the folks that went to the Biblical Counseling Conference, so Melissa and Susan and Bill and Barb and Miriam, would you guys mind just coming up here and I'll be up here as well? Sorry, I'm presuming on you a little bit. Would you guys be okay with that? Okay. So, I don't know why we're not so good at this, like realizing we need prayer and actually, we've done this in the past and maybe there's one or two people. If you're struggling with fear, it's not a weird like um, stigma thing. Ooh, I walk forward. What are people going to think? Well, they're probably going to think that you're fearful like they are and you need the grace and strength of, of God to deal with that. So we're going to sing the song and if you'd just like someone to pray with you as you're wrestling with some fear or something, some anxiety-producing circumstance, we would love to do that. Okay? So we'll be up here. Let's pray. Oh God, you are so, so, so great. And you are just almost too good to be true. Good. So good. So merciful and kind. Help us believe it. In Jesus' name.